Pacifica Radio Network and from KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is the Beloved Community. Resources for activism. I'm John Shuck. The website is progressivespirit.net. Many people are engaging in activism and protest of the activities of our new president. My guest today reminds us that our activism should not only be defensive, resisting what is bad, also it needs to be proactive and engaging in building the beloved community. Today we're going to talk about a condition that is responsible for the deaths of hundreds of millions of people. It is a condition that is completely preventable. Hunger. Why are so many people in the world, why is anyone in the world malnourished? What can we do about it? The answer, according to today's guest, is simple. We can end hunger by the force of law. Today's guest is John Teton. He's the director of the International Food Security Treaty. The website is treaty.org. The International Food Security Treaty, or IFST, aims to establish enforceable international law guaranteeing the right to be free from hunger and to oblige countries to establish their own related national laws. The International Food Security Treaty has been recognized as a crucial missing link in the world's efforts to eliminate hunger by leading figures in the United Nations, anti-hunger organizations, the U.S. Congress and court system, and national religious groups. John Teton lives in Lake Oswego, Oregon. He's a writer. He's written three science fiction novels. The novels are Appearing Live at the Final Test, Upsurge, and Elevation, The Cave Logs of New Hale, Tibet. John's work with the International Food Security Treaty is not science fiction. Instead, it is a shift to recognize in our consciences that hunger is a crime, like slavery. It is a crime that, like slavery, can be ended by force of law. John has written two articles about the International Food Security Treaty. In 2010, he published in the Yale Journal of International Affairs an article entitled The Armless Hand, The Call for Anti-Hunger Law and the International Food Security Treaty. This article was followed in 2016 by an article in the Harvard International Review called on the origin of a hunger-free species by means of enforceable natural law. John Teton is a graduate from Harvard and studied filmmaking at New York University. His idea for the International Food Security Treaty arose from his notes on his novel, Upsurge. He's with me in the studio. Welcome, John, to the beloved community. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here. This past August, you wrote an article for a Harvard International Review on the origin of a hunger-free species by means of enforceable natural law. And you wrote in there that there is no death more avoidable than death from hunger. What's behind the inability of the human species to end hunger? I would say uh, most fundamentally, it is a mindset that has prevailed for basically eons that accepts uh, without much examination or evidence that hunger is inevitable and uh, sometimes referred to as just part of the human condition. And therefore, the, the I guess I should take one step to the side to say what this treaty is. It aims to get nations to commit to fulfill the human right of freedom from hunger, which has been recognized internationally since the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was agreed upon at the UN uh, without a single dissenting vote in 1948. So the aim is to get uh, nations to commit to uh, fulfill that human right, but to protect it as well with national and international laws that are enforceable. Uh, unfortunately, uh, human rights generally have been expressed in a kind of an aspirational context without uh, a serious um, commitment to enforce them. And this tendency goes back uh, quite a ways. Um, the, uh, when Lincoln was uh, in thinking about running for president, he gave a speech where he spoke about the Declaration of Independence. And uh, the, he was uh, addressing the failure of the founders of the country to actually create equality for a great many people who were enslaved in the South. And so he said, the drafters did not mean to uh, contend that uh, all were then actually enjoying equality. 
nor were they about to confer it upon them. But they declared the right so that others in the future might create the enforcement mechanisms as soon as circumstances should permit. Well, that was uh, no doubt charitable in some cases. Uh, perhaps there were signers of the Declaration who didn't really give a damn about that or would have opposed abolition of slavery, but no doubt there were others. We certainly see in the record that uh, some of them were troubled by it, including Thomas Jefferson, for example. But uh, apparently circumstances didn't permit till some 80 or 90 years later. And at that point, I have to think that uh, since all of the original signers of the document were uh, deceased, that perhaps if their ghosts were able to see what was going on, they might have been embarrassed and wished that they'd taken care of the issue when they were alive and able to do something about it themselves. Anyway, that's what this uh, treaty movement is about primarily. You're asking uh, why hasn't uh, hunger been redressed prior to this? It's because of this mindset. And so no death being more avoidable. Well, this is not lung cancer. Hunger has had a uh, perfectly satisfactory preventive measure and cure uh, since the beginning of, uh, well, even long before the rise of human beings. And that measure is called food. And their experts mm -hmm. have long agreed that there's plenty of it to go around and that it's a matter of distribution and ensuring that people get access to it when they can't get access to it on their own. That's what this movement is about principally is showing these simple steps can be done to reverse hunger just as polio was reversed um, in the late 20th century with political will being summoned and as a result of public pressure. That's a rather large nutshell version of uh, the answer to your question. Well, in 1948, so they make the UN a resolution that food is a human right. Mm -hmm. And this puts teeth to it. Exactly. Basically, it's building on, because um, that was probably in 1948, a big statement for the world to make that. But mm -hmm. enforcing it or doing it voluntarily isn't enough. It isn't cutting it. And now we're saying, no, this needs to be a law. And like, as you, you had said in the article, it's a law like uh, we had to have a law to abolish slavery. You have to have a law for women's suffrage. So there's law that's enforceable that needs to happen on, on a scale like this. Right. And uh, most social justice changes have required hard law. By hard law, it means, you know, you could say that um, there was a law uh, protecting this human right of freedom from hunger as soon as that declaration was signed. But if, if it's not actually enforced, it doesn't mean much. And um, you referred to teeth. I heard that term from, or read it from a letter I got from Abner Mikva. Abner Mikva was one of President Obama's mentors. He was a very well-grounded realist. He served in the U.S. Congress. He was the chief judge of the D.C. Court of Appeals in Washington. He was White House counsel. And he was, I think, the first, one of the very first people to see this proposal and he uh, wrote back that um, he was pleased that it had teeth. He said it must have teeth because another uh, declaration is not going to accomplish the task. And you'll note it, like the whole 13th Amendment uh, to the Constitution that abolished slavery is only 33 words long. But some of those words were devoted to enforcement. It didn't just say slavery shall not exist. It said Congress shall have the power to enforce this article. And similarly with, um, you mentioned women's suffrage. That is uh, a great example because there was talk of expanding women's rights long before the uh, American Revolution uh, in, this, in the colonies here. And uh, yet... A guaranteed recognition of the right to vote, which, I mean, from our perspective, it's shocking that it was delayed so long. Most of the country's history, women have not had that guaranteed right. But And there was a, a well-known historical moment in that movement in as early, uh, prior to 1850, there was a convention in Seneca Falls, New York, where uh, 100 people signed a formal demand uh, that the American women in this country should have the right to vote. 
unfortunately, uh, talk about the difficulty of changing mindset, even though just a few years later, uh, slavery was abolished, and not long after that, former slaves who were male were given the right to vote. Uh, women did not gain that right by constitutional guarantee until 1920. And at that point, I think there was only one woman left from the original Seneca Falls Convention still uh, alive and able to exercise that right. So these movements take a long time, and people need to recognize who might be despairing because things take a long time that uh, that is the norm. I once spoke to a chief counsel um, at Amnesty International, and she said, I read history at night so I can get through the day without getting too depressed. In other words, by being familiar with the way great changes uh, of this nature for accomplishing social justice measures, uh, it gives you it gives you the patience that's essential to accomplish something. I mean, when I've talked to people and staffers in Congress, for example, they might say something like, there's no way we're going to get this passed in this session. Besides, we're very busy with the farm bill or with uh, we're dealing with uh, foreign aid. And so anti-hunger groups sometimes, uh, well, they pat themselves on the back with good justification for accomplishing an increase in foreign aid budget lines. But that's not enough. And how do we know it's not enough? Because uh, in these last uh, close to 70 years since the Universal Declaration, there's still uh, some 800 million people suffering serious malnutrition, uh, millions of whom die every year from that. Um, and it's a, it's a terrible many, and painful death. How many people die from hunger every day? Um, the figure that I have found to be most reliable uh, is about 20,000, and most of those are children. 20,000 people die from hunger every day, the and, most and, and pre should, preventable cause of death. I, I need to underscore that this means not just pure uh, starvation from lack of calories entering the body, but because of a generalized weakness due to malnutrition, children and adults can get into a spot where they cannot, their bodies cannot handle the healing of conditions that otherwise they might be able with, with proper diet and healthcare be able to survive, but weakened severely by malnutrition, they die on account of that. Um, you quoted in your article in the Harvard International Review, uh, Amartya Zen, Amartya Sen? Amartya Sen, yes. Amartya Sen, who said people don't starve unless someone wants them to. I mean, we are talking about political, for a long time, reasons for hunger. He's talking there about actual starvation. Our treaty addresses starvation and malnutrition. Mm -hmm. So the number of people who suffer malnutrition on Earth is 100 times that of the number who die in any one year. Uh, but the enlightening point that Sen was making, and he's, by the way, uh, been a supporter of this treaty for some time. In fact, when he spoke at the uh, Schnitzer Concert Hall here to a packed house a few years ago, um, he mentioned the Food Security Treaty as something that he was supportive of. The treaty arose in the wake of the Somalia famine in the early 90s. And he pointed out that People might think, well, there's drought in that part of the world, so of course people aren't going to have enough food. But actually, he pointed out that there was drought that was worse to the south without starvation. But there were these warlord-driven famines where hunger is used as a weapon. And uh, it's, it's actually a, about as cruel a weapon as anyone has ever conceived of. Death from hunger... Uh, can last hundreds of hours, and everybody's seen the horrible pictures that uh, even a child, I, I, I would, you know, nobody's done a study like this that I'm aware of, but I would bet that children as young as three or even two can be horrified by those images, and certainly older children are, and I know that personally because at the time of that Somal Somalia famine, um, my first child was 10 years old, and she saw this on uh, television uh, and got very upset and said, if I were old enough, I would get on a plane tomorrow and go try and help feed those people. 
And I said, actually, I had been thinking about that. I'd seen the pictures as well, and I had a social action group I was coordinating at the time. And I thought, well, I've got to figure out something to do to contribute to this. And I was also working to uh, incorporate whatever that might be into the book you referred to, Upsurge. But I didn't have anything in hand to talk to her about, so I just, you know, I uh, praised her thoughtfulness and so forth. That wasn't enough for her. She said, what can we do about it? I said, well, I'll, I'll make some calls. And she said, will you make them tomorrow? So uh, that kind of underscored for me that much as we adults worldwide have hmm. adopted this mindset that, well, what can you do? That's just the way it is. Uh, it's part of the human condition, et cetera, et cetera. These are various excuses for not taking action to to uh, solve these problems. Um, even a child could see, no, this should not happen, and we have to make it not happen. So my thought then was, well, this, this uh, famine that's obviously being caused by political uh, for political means in Somalia. And oh, by the way, there were similar pictures of people um, – in the Balkan Wars at the time, they were obviously being uh, malnourished in, in prison. There's a crime here. There ha this has to be a crime. Uh, when you cause severe injury to somebody, that's a crime, especially if it's a mortal injury. So I started thinking, well, if it's a crime, there's got to be a law against it. So I looked around. I found this Universal Declaration, which was followed up in 1966 by a covenant in the, uh, put together in the UN called the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, which underscored the right to food and, uh, in fact, described it as fundamental. And it was the only human right that got that designation. But where was the movement to enforce that right with law? Uh, we've had no trouble coming up with laws against uh, murder, rape, armed robbery, double parking, uh, and yet here was a very grievous harm that had a law. It was basically outlawing it, but it wasn't being enforced. So, uh, and I, I actually have three other careers going in it in addition to this volunteer work I do for the treaty, and I don't have, never had the luxury of, of putting full time into it. But periodically, over the next several months, I kept looking. This is pre-internet, early 90s. And I couldn't find, I got information on dozens and dozens of anti-hunger groups. None of them seemed to be pressing to take this human right seriously by granting a protection of enforceable law. So while writing that book, I just drafted in a few minutes the four basic, four or five basic principles that I thought could form a, a, a really effective law. And then I started to circulate it. You're listening to The Beloved Community. I'm John Schuck, and I'm speaking with John Teton, the director of the International Food Security Treaty. As you mentioned, you, you drafted uh, back in 1993. It's only 700 words or so. Uh, what are the principles of this uh, food treaty? Yeah, the, uh, the principles are even less. The actual draft treaty that was arrived at by conference um, between a whole bunch of people involved in this issue in the run-up to the 1996 World Food Summit, that whole treaty, which is a draft treaty, and it certainly will have some modifications as nations get around to negotiating its final form, that 700 words, the actual principles, which really spell out the whole idea, is just one long sentence. It distills down to four basic principles. The first is that signatory nations agree to guarantee minimum a minimal nutrition level for people within its borders who can't get access to it on their own. It's not about getting steak and ice cream sundaes to people. It's making sure nobody suffers malnutrition or starves. The second point is that nations would have to contribute to a World Food Reserve and Resource Center. Notice it's not, it's not just food giveaways. Those are a last resort. Anything that the international community can do, uh, for example, uh, assistance with uh, agricultural means or economic measures to prevent um, to assist them in being able to meet that guarantee that that would be like a 
the, what, what a fire department is to a community. Uh, a nation could turn to this World Food Reserve and Resource Center to get help if they can't meet that guarantee, emergency help I'm referring to. Mm-hmm. The third point is they agree to establish and enforce law against the use of hunger as a weapon. That's addressing the criminal aspect of it. And finally, they would need to agree to support UN food security enforcement actions if it's proven that uh, a nation is unable or unwilling to enforce the law on its own. And that's the enforcement part. So um, is any individual country within its own borders have a law similar to this? I mean, uh, not, a, the United States, I mean, you can die of hunger here. It's not against the law, I guess, is it, for our country? It, well, it's against the measures that the U.S. has put into place so that starvation not been a problem here for many decades. Mm-hmm. There is hunger insecurity, and there are many aspects of food security that this treaty deliberately does not get into. Because the more you hang on the back of this movement to end malnutrition and uh, starvation, the harder it's going to get to be to negotiate. For example, uh, a woman came up to me after a presentation I gave at New York University, and she was uh, disturbed that the treaty did not include a prohibition on genetically modified organisms. Well, that happens to be a very contentious issue. Uh, Even in this state of Oregon, um, mere labeling of the use of those organisms was voted down. And there are many people who are viewed as uh, progressives uh, or liberals who have vouched for GMOs. Uh, I... Neither I nor anybody involved with the treaty that I know that's speaking on behalf of the treaty is going to get involved with that because we have to get this first and most urgent issue, which is to ending the death and crippling rates of hunger, to come to an end. Right, that's the biggest issue right there. Let's stop stop people dying from hunger uh, is the first thing. And so that's why the, the uh, treaty itself is rather narrowly focused. Mm-hmm. And not just dying from hunger, but as I mentioned earlier, hundreds of millions of people suffer from hunger. It's not just a momentary uh, discomfort or even a discomfort that lasts for weeks and then is solved once they get food. Uh, When you subject a child for uh, years to inadequate nutrition, it it stunts their growth and not just their physical uh, height and weight, but their uh, mental capacity. So the loss, I mean, I hate it when people try to justify, uh, but they can understand why they feel they need to, but um, human rights measures uh, get justified in terms of finances alone. But this one could be justified in terms of finances alone because when you have uh, massive crippling due to extreme poverty and hunger and malnutrition, that has impacts uh, all across the board. It affects the entire region where that happens, and then hunger uh, tends to be associated with instability, political instability that is regional, sometimes international. So on a cost basis alone, uh, there's more than enough justification to eliminate hunger, as can be done. So what has been... um your experience in presenting this to politicians and so forth. Um, I know Merkley, Senator Merkley, uh, is supportive, a senator from Oregon. Uh, but what about others? Uh, how, how is the process going? How is, how is it being received by uh, uh, political forces in our country? I mentioned doing this as a volunteer, and I have to say, well, it's not got any kind of financial rewards to it. It certainly has uh, rewards in terms of just being just plain fascinating to see how um, a major legislative change uh, is is greeted across the spectrum. Uh, in one case, uh, I'll refer to two major nationally known political leaders uh, from the same state. One of them immediately responded forcefully and um, and very positively. And a, a statement attesting to that support is on our website. The other one 
It took seven years to get the, a similar statement. Now, why did it take seven years? Was it because the political leader was hemming and hawing? Or maybe she never even heard about it because her staff didn't present it to her. Or it got presented and got kind of washed away uh, in the wake of other issues. There are all kinds of responses that I've seen to this. Another uh, member of Congress from the Northwest, his uh, staffer said to me, well, he doesn't like to commit to things that aren't in final form because the devil's in the details. Yeah, sometimes the devil is in the details. But I've pointed out sometimes the devil is in the use of that saying as an excuse for political cowardice or just general lassitude uh, and unwillingness to take a bold step. So anybody who gets involved um, in that regard, and I hope everybody will, because this assistance can boil down to just four minutes of work. Everybody in this country, of course, we're going for all countries, but in the U.S., everyone has four elected representatives, a member of Congress, the House, two senators, and the president. So what I suggest is the minimum thing that somebody could do that's really cumulatively effective is to place calls to those four individuals and say, I want you to do everything in your power to uh, advance this uh, International Food Security Treaty. That's four minutes out of somebody's life, but uh, collectively that makes a big difference. It's a lot better than just clicking on a uh, preformed statement on a website, which a lot of groups do and encourage, but I've just seen over and over and over again that those get very little, carry very little weight in Congress. So, uh, but if somebody wishes to go further with it, and let's say they get a form letter back from their senator uh, dismissing this, I have to say I got a letter from uh, President Obama, of course, I'm sure he had nothing to do with this. I saw a picture just recently of the office where people go through all the letters. And often I know these people are not very well. They're just handling a million letters a second and they don't really give him much thought. So I, I mentioned the treaty, described it, said why I hoped he would uh, get behind it. And I get a letter with his supposed signature, no doubt stamped, about climate change, which I never mentioned. A prior attempt to write to him got no response. So those things can be discouraging to people, and they should expect that they might happen. But overall, if you persist, you will find people who say, oh, this is, this is a no-brainer. This, got, this has got to be done. So again, it's, it's a long-haul process. And, uh, but even if it's just that four minutes, that helps. It's part of the thing, I think, psychologically, going back to why haven't we solved this problem of something that just seems, well, it's just always with us. And then here's a solution that's relatively straightforward. Well, let's enforce it. Um, since the Green Revolution, uh, the globe has the capacity to feed everyone on the planet. I mean, no one even really doubts that, that there isn't enough food to go around. I mean, the objections are perhaps, so you've got corrupt dictators who, who stop it, or, or there are just different reasons for, for not having it. But um, we, we've reached a level in which technologically we can do this, uh, but we haven't quite got to the point, and you point this out in your article, um, where we feel uh, individually that actually we can do this. It still seems like a bigger problem than we can actually handle, but it has to get to this point where we had a tipping point, I think, uh, is what I'm getting. A tipping point where people realize, no, actually, this is a solvable problem, and, and here's how we can do it by enforcing it at the, at the international level. Yeah, I mean, an international commitment of some kind would be necessary for anything of this scale. It wouldn't necessarily have to involve law in some instances. For example, with polio, the vaccines, Sabin and Salk vaccines, had been around for a third of a century in the late 1980s, and polio was still attacking, on average, a thousand more children every day. But a movement had been building to get these vaccinations available across the board and around the world. And uh, at that time, uh, people pressing for a polio eradication measure at the World Health Assembly, which included, I should mention, uh, the Rotary Group, which is not a governmental group, 
they got the World Health Assembly to commit to tackling this once and for all, and it succeeded in that in 15 years, the uh, rate of polio infection dropped 99.8%. Now, we're trying to get hunger to drop 100%, but we'll be pretty happy with the progress along the way when we get to 99.8. But the point is to also be happy uh, with any increase uh, in the strengthening of, of uh, the right to food. In fact, the proportion of people suffering from hunger has um, globally decreased somewhat. But there's still at 800 million, <laughs> it's not, I'll say, far too many because even one person starving or suffering severe malnutrition is too many. But uh, that's why I'm, I don't want to put down any kind of progress that's made. There are many other anti-hunger measures and organizations out there, and uh, I personally welcome them all, and I think all food security treaty advocates do as well. And the more we stay out of each other's way or even better yet support each other, the better. I think once this treaty is passed, everything else that people consider important to food security will be able to get uh, benefit from the greater attention that's been given to the issue. It isn't up to the treaty to detail how each country is going to carry out these mandates. It's just, here's the mandate, and now use your creativity, use your work. It's getting really just the, the will is, is the issue, that we, we care that 800 million people are malnourished. Mm-hmm. And, and and we want to do something about it, and we think this is an international issue, and, and we can. Uh, and so it's just up to our will to be able to do it. And and that's that's a big uh, – that seems to be a big leap, but it's not an impossible leap. You talk about that we are evolving, um, that the, you talk about the social justice gene. Can you mention that a little bit more? Well, that's why I have that title. It might seem a bit uh, archaic uh, on the origin of a hunger-free species. I was deliberately uh, – riffing on Darwin's book uh-huh. about on the origin of species by means of natural selection. And I do view this movement as part of the overall process of evolution. I don't think that's uh, asking too much of the concept of evolution. And I pointed out with a quote from Darwin himself that uh, the care for the for other people human beings in great difficulty is part of, as he viewed it, um, the hardwiring of human species. And there can be no question in my mind that um, human rights have been evolving in fits and starts and over a long period, and there's a long way to go. But if you look at things, how things are now compared to the way they were uh, at the time of the American Revolution, much less thousands of years ago, there's been a lot of progress. Um, Slavery, for example, uh, no knock against the Bible, but uh, slavery is not um, treated as an evil that must be ended. The uh, Old Testament does have laws about um, treating slaves well. That's not the same as saying slavery should never exist. And in this country, obviously, uh, slavery was allowed uh, and completely sanctioned in the Constitution. And it took many decades to get that undone. But it's we're better, we're way better off as a country that we've had that institutional slavery abolished for a long time. Then it took even more time to get the right for women to vote. It took still. Uh, more time to get children out of coal mines and manufacturers, uh, excuse me, out of manufacturing jobs. And, you know, people, I'm sure many were discouraged. The Congress passed legislation repeatedly trying to get uh, child labor laws passed that would ensure that children could get an education and were not forced to work in heavy industry uh, instead of going to school. And then the Supreme Court shot Congress down. And that happened again and again and again. It took about 20 years till finally the court uh, let up and said, okay, we'll let this legislation go through. You know, the, if, if people give up after uh, two years or two months of effort, then these major goals are not going to be achieved. 
This is the Beloved Community. I'm John Schuck. I'm speaking with John Teton, the director of the International Food Security Treaty. The International Food Security Treaty, or IFST, aims to establish enforceable international law guaranteeing the right to be free from hunger and to oblige countries to establish their own related national laws. On your webpage, treaty.org, there are a list of endorsements. The Unitarian Universalist Association of Churches has endorsed this. Who else? Uh, well, there's quite a few that you could see on the uh, treaty's website, treaty.org, mm-hmm. under endorsements. Um, as far as religious groups, uh, this is an area that I hope to see major growth uh, in the year ahead. We just had an event at an interfaith initiative in, in uh, Santa Barbara, California, a few months ago, and people from eight different faiths had gathered there to, um, in part, to hear about hunger measures generally, but in particular about this treaty. And shortly after that, I met with them via Skype uh, to help move that forward. And I think uh, basically, if you look at abolition, that too is pressed by religious leaders mm-hmm. long before it got any kind of serious support in the Congress or from the president. Uh, and it's because something as basic as a human right that alleviates the severe suffering of hunger, it just reaches the soul. You don't believe in the soul? Talk about conscience. But whatever it is, it that's why children are the first to see uh, this is a, a terrible wrong that should be corrected. So that's why uh, whether or not a person is a member of a religious group, uh, there is some kind of deeply embedded understanding that hunger is wrong. And if you are a member of a religious group, well, I sure encourage you to speak to your uh, fellow, shall I say, co-religionists and your clergy and, and inspire them to uh, take whatever steps they can to advance this treaty. Yeah, I, I think sometimes people, when they think of religion, they think, well, it's voluntary. Voluntary. I mean, you, uh, uh, it's about stopping hunger as a voluntary individual thing. But really, there's a long social justice component within all of religious traditions that know that they, you need to have political action. And so, and that's the difference of the element here between voluntary stopping of hunger and saying, no, we need to have a law with teeth. Um, that actually says this is a human right and we will enforce it and it can be done like we do other things. Mm-hmm. It's just applying it to hunger. Um, I want to talk about a couple of other things. You are a, a filmmaker, went to school at NYU with Martin Scorsese. Is that what I read? Well, it's just a summer program, but uh, I've been interested in writing and my writing was very, the concepts I was coming up with were very visual and they moved. I thought, oh, I guess I got to look into filmmaking. I'd done theater work before that. And uh, I was in college, and I asked around where the best film school was in the summer, and I heard, well, there's this guy, Marty Scorsese, teaching at NYU. And so uh, I very doggedly uh, tried to get into that program. I was told it was full up, but I went to New York anyway, and I was actually told no eight times. But I showed up on the first morning, and um, I'd been told that there was already a waiting list of 40 other people from around the country. But when a vacancy turned up on that first morning, the uh, Scorsese's assistant took me in there and he said, there's a vacancy. This guy wants it. Scorsese said he's got it. And that was it. So I got started that way. And you have uh, Earthlight Pictures mm-hmm. is, is yours. And what? And from that, uh, a film that just came, just released this year, uh, Thunderhead Clearing. It's an animated film, about seven minutes. Uh, talks about uh, um, this very issue that we're talking about, International Food Security Treaty. Can you tell a little bit more about that film? Yeah, actually, it's a 2016 release. And uh, the point is that something of this uh, broad application um, it, it's like an aircraft. It has to have two wings. There's the policy wing. And I, I had to spend a long time getting the kind of credibility that comes from having this very long list of endorsers with their statements that you can see at treaty.org, uh, experts in hunger, international law, political, uh, political and religious leaders and so forth. And doing all these presentations that you referred to, including one for the Human Rights Caucus where a congresswoman introduced me who is, had been a public health nurse. Not many public health professionals make it to Congress. But she said, when I first heard this, I thought it was pie in the sky, but no more. I think it's really serious. And her colleague, the co-chair of the House Hunger Caucus, Jim McGovern, said, this is doable. 
So once that was established, it became important to get to the general public. And the general public is equally capable of reading policy papers and so forth, but, you know, art has uh, quite a good history of influencing policy, whether it's the China Syndrome or Uncle Tom's Cabin, regardless of whatever mm-hmm. aesthetic objections you might have to that book, it did have an impact. So we, meaning myself with a whole crew of artists from across uh, the country and other countries, spent years putting together this film on about mostly through volunteer effort, some crowdfunding, um, that would generate a, a kind of emotional context for this movement. And so it has mythic and fantasy imagery, but it's also well grounded in the realities of hunger and of international law. There's no dialogue. It has an original score. And uh, the 2D, it's 2D and 3D. The 2D work was done by wonderful artists uh, who basically are contributing fine arts drawings put into animation. And then the 3D animation was done by another sub-crew. And my hope is that over time, this, in addition to those articles you referred to, collectively will move the treaty forward so that uh, it begins to be taken seriously in the UN, which is where we are now. We have to get it to the UN, which means we have to get individual nations to send their ambassadors to the UN to hammer out the details and put their signatures on the dotted line. You see the reference to that kind of signing in the movie. Uh, John Teton, my guest, Director of the International Food Security Treaty as a filmmaker and also an author. We talked about uh, your three uh, novels um, the appearing live at the final test. That was in, in the 90s. I think that was written. Upsurge and Elevation is your new one. Uh, the Cave Logs of New Hail Tibet. But I want to go to Upsurge because that's the novel really that talks about this issue specifically. Talk about that novel a little bit and how and how the writing of it was really the core of, of getting this program going. Yeah, that book is an out-and-out science fiction book, and there mm-hmm. are fantasy speculative fiction elements in the other two, But uh, and they probably would get classified by some generally science fiction, but not they're not really, and they don't get into actual science the way Upsurge does, and it's not the science of rockets. It deals more with biophysics and geophysics. Uh, but I think, again, like I talked about the aircraft with two wings. Well, here in a single work... Mm-hmm. Readers, um, and of course, any books, if it has anything remotely connected to messaging in it, that messaging has got to take a back seat to literary and entertainment values because uh, nobody needs a screed when they're trying to read for pleasure. But if in reading for pleasure, uh, they also come across something that they find inspiring, well, that's all to the good. So uh, it's set initially in the Bay Area, and there's a a scientist and his wife who have uh, some children, and the oldest one is this girl who uh, is a 15-year-old, and she and her friends get really riled up about this, and they're very excited and inspired, and they create a music video for their school, and when that doesn't uh, get the attention they hope, they get discouraged, and then that feeds off into um, this extremely fantastical kind of adventure where she uh, finds herself uh, falling into a hidden and spectacular world and she has to she has to get out of it somehow so again it's entertainment um, bound up like a double helix with advance of policy in a single work that was the aim and we'll see over the long haul if if it achieves that aim Who's working with you now, kind of at the grassroots, and and what's uh, you mentioned that people can contact um, their representatives, their senators, their political people. Are there other uh, ways in which people are connecting with this? Is there other grassroots? Is there a bill uh, specifically uh, before Congress? Now? Well, treaties are negotiated by the executive branch in this country, and then um, once they are negotiated. Uh, it's up to the Senate to confirm them. So one could say, well, the Congress, and especially the House, has only a limited 
uh, role, but that's not quite true. They can have a, a major moral uh, influence. Um, resolutions definitely have limitations, but they can contribute, especially if they're followed up by uh, the leaders who who draft and pass them. So uh, I want to mention, though, that in terms of ways people can help, um, it's it's not just political leaders. On the website under a section called Ways to Help, uh, there's a volunteer information form. And people can fill that out and send it to us. But uh, the main value of it is it shows a whole range of ways in which people can help uh, that I mean, it's really still a rather nascent movement. So mm -hmm. there are opportunities for people to be leaders. For example, let's say someone um, in a church in uh, Oklahoma is moved to uh, bring this up at the church and get others to do what they can. Or somebody who's in a, uh, uh, in a fraternity in a college in Washington. Um, or I mentioned Rotary earlier, civic groups, uh, one can reach out or, or you have, say, a friend in another country. Maybe it's a pen pal or maybe you are from the other country and you have a way to reach them and inspire them to take action. There's, this is not like getting uh, an MD where there's a very specific scripted path that everybody has to follow to get that degree. There uh, innumerable ways to help. And by looking at that volunteer information form, it'll hopefully prompt people uh, to come up with ideas if they say, I just, I'll do anything. Just tell me, you know, we'll take that help. Because, because where we are right now with this movement is getting the word out uh, about it. It's getting out in a variety of ways. Like you mentioned, the film, through novels, through art, through um, having a, uh, we're in Portland. I mean, Portland uh, having a city ordinance. Hey, we, we're taking yes. international food security right. seriously. City resolutions are important. Back in the 80s when Reagan was in office, he uh, put into play a big nuclear buildup in Europe, which scared a lot of people. He talked about Armageddon. And so a lot of uh, municipalities started to pass resolutions calling for support of a nuclear freeze. Uh, that would say no more uh, development of nuclear weapons. Let's stop it and then talk about reversing it. Um, and that didn't seem to go anywhere uh, at first. But in his second term... Reagan negotiated a really important uh, nuclear arms limitation uh, agreement with the Soviet Union on intermediate nuclear forces. So you don't always know uh, right off the bat how effective your, your action has been. I once heard Daniel Ellsberg uh, ask a crowd of people who had been active against the war in Vietnam, how do you think your, your uh, actions at the time had made a difference, and the whole forest of hands went up. This was after the war was over. He said, when I asked that question earlier on during the war, um, people, I didn't get that kind of response. People were very discouraged. But in fact, it was the huge uh, upswell of um, opposition to the war in Vietnam that led uh, President Nixon to take actions which later resulted in his forced resignation because he saw the, the huge uh, opposition growing, not just among you know, uh, people that could be framed as anarchists or troublemakers, but across the political spectrum and the demographic spectrum, people were opposed. And it turned out, in retrospect, people were able to see that their earlier actions had made a difference. In your novel, um, Upsurge, you mentioned um, ADS, A-A-D-S, acceptance of avoidable death and suffering. Uh, we suffer the disease of accepting suffering. Yeah, that's the disease, it's, uh, the kids say, uh, uh -huh. the disease that cripples the spirit of whoever's got it in the body of somebody else. And ADS is not a joke. Uh, right. The s casualties from hunger, the result of this acceptance, uh, are far greater numerically even than the casualties due to AIDS. John, thank you for this project. Ambitious and yet and yet very hopeful. You, you've, you've made a believer out of me. So I appreciate, uh, appreciate you doing this work. Thanks so much, John. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to The Beloved Community, resources for activism. The Beloved Community is produced once per month for stations on the Pacifica Radio Network. 
I also produce a weekly half-hour show, Progressive Spirit, that is also available to Pacifica stations. Both shows are on podcast. You can catch them on your favorite podcast app. The website for more information about the show is progressivespirit.net. Progressive Spirit and the beloved community are produced at KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Schott. Be well.